Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. Um, if you're new or just coming back after a hiatus, first of all, welcome back. Rachel and I have been doing a series of talks on the four foundations of mindfulness. So we've been alternating every week, both giving a talk on the same topic. And I'm starting off the topic of the third foundation, mindfulness of the mind, which I'll get into later. All of these teachings on the four foundations are attributed to the Buddha, the artist formerly known as Siddhartha Gautama. <laughs> so we think this person existed and we think that you know maybe it's possible that through meditation had an experience of awakening, right? And after his awakening, he taught. He taught to people just like you and I, and they collected these teachings into a book called the Pali Canon. And one of these collections of teachings is called the Satipatthana Sutta. It's about a 10-page comprehensive set of instructions on how to practice mindfulness, which is really cool because any mindfulness teacher in modern 21st century, wherever you live, can trace back a lot of these instructions to this 2,600-year-old teaching on mindfulness. And in the sutta, the the Buddha covers four foundations of mindfulness. There's the body, feeling tone, mind states, and something called dhammas, categories of experience. I've written these up on the board. And Rachel and I have been going through each of these and some of the Buddha's instructions around these four. And before we get into the instructions today, I want to offer a little bit of a recap of the previous foundations, but also this kind of prelude that the Buddha offers before we practice meditation. We should develop these kind of four qualities or relationships to our meditation practice. He says the first thing is that you should really practice meditation diligently. And diligence in this sense, it means something like ardency or having a a commitment, a discipline. Um, The interesting thing here is that what he's saying is that meditation is all about training the mind. It's fundamentally a science of attention training. And they know this in neuroscience too, when your attention wanders, Wherever your attention goes, gets magnified. And they also know that we have this negativity bias where our attention tends to go towards the things that we perceive as threats because of our survival. So we tend to proliferate and ruminate on our worries and our stresses, and not that it's just all mental suffering all the time, but this is just kind of the nature of the mind. The mind is wired to survive, not necessarily to be happy from like a mental health perspective. So 
the Buddha says, yeah, mindfulness is going to take some training and some practice. It's not something passive. It's something that you really want to try to engage with continuously. That being said, when Westerners are introduced to the idea of discipline, we become strivers, right? And very goal-setting people. And so we sit down to meditate, and the mind's not clear, the mind's restless, it's distracted, it's irritable, and then we get frustrated, and who do we get frustrated with ourselves? And then we tell ourselves a story that I can't meditate, and then we give up, right? So this is what the Buddha would call unwise effort. He said that effort, managing your effort and your relationship to your meditation practice has to be similar to like tuning an instrument. If it's too rigid, it will be too sharp, too harsh. If it's too lethargic, too soft, too, you know, not enough inspiration, it will be too flat. It will fall flat. And he talked about effort more than any other topic of his Eightfold Path. And that's why I feel like it's so important to bring up at the start of a talk on mindfulness because we're constantly trying to balance our relationship to being present. We're not going to do it 100% of the time. Our awareness isn't always going to be, we're not always going to have that capacity to connect with it. It's going to be covered with our reactions, our emotions, sure. But we just make that commitment to try to be curious. What's it like right now is a good enough question. What's happening inside right now? So the Buddha says, yeah, it's going to take some diligence. And he offers as a support the Sangha, which is the community. I think he had an awareness that we are very social animals and we need each other to support each other. You know, I sometimes think if I didn't have this commitment as the guiding teacher here, my practice probably would have fallen off like five or six years ago. <laughs> so we set up, you know, some structures, you know, some friendships. We start to build a routine and those things help keep us accountable to the practice. He also says that mindfulness, the second quality, is for the purpose of clear comprehension. The word is sampajanya, clear comprehension. And what this means is knowing things directly rather than conceptually. So mindfulness is like a science experiment. You don't go in with a bunch of ideas about what you're going to get or what you want. You go in just with a watchful eye. What is it like now? What is the mind like? What's happening in the body? Noticing the feelings, the emotions. Wisdom is gained through direct observation. We know this in the scientific method. We get more clear comprehension of certain relationships to principles and experiences in our world through direct observation. This is really empowering. The Buddha is not saying, believe me, or you're meditating to try to figure out this thing or that thing. He's saying, if you want to understand your mind, like Manindraji says, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and watch it. So we try to just notice the simple rudimentary experience. Simple but not easy. A thought is a thought. Usually I'm the subject of my thought and the thought is about the future and how the future is going to 
be a bunch of shit, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to have to prepare myself. And it's, it's me, 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 me. You know, I'm the subject. And the Buddha is saying we're trying to be more objective. And this brings us to the second or the third quality, mindfulness. Mindfulness is an objective monitoring. Thoughts, feelings, emotions. Instead of saying, we'll talk about this later, I'm angry or I'm upset with this person. We try to actually take personal responsibility for what the mind is doing and saying, oh, there's anger in my mind. There's anger in this mind. There's a story of uh, resentment in this mind. So this is what we mean by observing the simple sensory experience is just noticing what's present mindfully monitoring the arising and passing of thoughts and emotions and sensations within the present experience the goal of mindfulness is just to be aware not to fix not to change but just to be aware and awareness itself untangles delusion but we don't have patience for mindfulness a lot of the time so we notice we're angry and we want to fix it and when we want to fix it, we create this story about I'm this angry person. I need to stop being angry and I have no patience for my anger, no compassion for my anger, no curiosity around my anger. I just need it to be gone. And I lose mindfulness. So that's tricky, but it, it is, it's simple, not easy, to just try to step back. And they teach us this in early practices around mindfulness, like... Uh, you know, the Headspace app is they often use this imagery of like a big sky, like your mind is like a big sky. And the thoughts and the emotions and the physical sensations are like the weather pattern that comes through the sky. And mindfulness is about realizing that your mind is the sky and not the weather system and letting the weather system come and go without getting involved in it. The fourth thing the Buddha says is we want to try to have, uh, when we formally meditate, a commitment to free ourselves from the desire and discontent for the world. And what this means is that we're not actively sitting down and planning and fantasizing and comparing. It happens all by itself, but it's not our intention for 30 minutes of meditation. So he says, try to set an intention in your meditation practice for the 20 minutes, 30 minutes that you're sitting. There's nowhere to go, nothing to do, no right or wrong way to be, no expectations, just present and aware. So this is challenging because our attention is conditioned. Our attention is conditioned mostly to get lost in what? stories, thoughts, emotions. So the first foundation of mindfulness says, what's the furthest away from stories, thoughts, and emotions you can get? <laughs> and the closest to the present you can get, your breath and your body. So the Buddha is, I think, really a genius in this. And he almost is kind of saying at the very beginning is, just ignore the thinking mind. Yes, it's happening. Yes, you can't control it. Yes, your attention really likes to get lost in it. That's not your fault. That's just conditioning. But every time that conditioning happens, notice it, 
bring your attention back to the breath, back to the body. How does this help us? Well, throughout our day, it creates this simple awareness. Driving down the road, tripping about some shit, notice that you're tripping and you come back to the present. You're like, all right, I'm here. Simple awareness, that's mindfulness, coming, coming to the rescue. Mindfulness of the breath and the body, embodied awareness. It also helps us to ground ourselves in formal meditation practice by focusing on the sensations of the breath, the in and out. Eventually, your attention stops becoming so wobbly and hyperactive, and your mind actually starts to become more tranquil, more calm over time. And as your mind becomes more tranquil and more calm over time, you can start to see the patterning of your thoughts, the stories, the emotions. You can start to see the patterning clearer from a tranquil mind. Right? Who is it? Einstein is attributed with the quote of like, you can't solve a problem with the same stuff that you use to create it. Right? You can't create insight through a mind that has delusion, right? You can't create insight through a mind that has a ton of reactivity. <laughs> so ignoring the mind and saying, thanks for sharing, not right now, here's the breath, developing that skill to ignore the mind and focus on the breath helps us to get space and distance from the mind. And then when the thoughts and emotions arise, we can see them with more clarity from a distance. Interestingly, the same type of theory is uh, practiced in trauma therapy. You can't process through trauma with a dysregulated nervous system. So you have to work on grounding and resourcing and help, helping people to feel more of their parasympathetic nervous system state, the rest and relax state. They call this the like ventral vagal state where you're socially engaged and present, at ease in your body, and then you can bring up the activating trauma and process it. And the Buddha said this too, there's two parts of meditation, samatha, which is tranquility, and vipassana, which is insight, and they support each other. So I say all of this to say, it's really important to, yeah, have mindfulness of the body, but it's about soothing the body it's about it's a we use this practice of metta this loving kindness this gentle relationship to coming into the body and we moved on then from mindfulness of the body to feeling tone last time feeling tone is noticing how our reactivity is built upon these primary feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. At the most basic core level, when your nervous system, your brain registers something as unpleasant, simple things start to happen in the body. These are actually parts of our brainstem. They call them preparatory responses, contracting muscles. You know, when you think of someone that you're pissed off at, contracting muscles. When you have physical discomfort in your body, contracting muscles. This is totally impersonal. This is what the animal body does. 
So the Buddha says we can kind of actually notice this very primary space of contracting around unpleasant. Because on top of that contracting, what happens is a mental attitude that this needs to go away. This needs to be different. The anger, the frustration. And if we don't practice gently observing that, it spills out into our lives. So if we can notice the unpleasant sensations and thoughts and feelings and try to soften the body and let them arise and pass on their own, we don't have to be so reactive. And this is a lot of what we do during meditation. Believe it or not, sitting with yourself quietly for 30 minutes isn't all that comfortable a lot of the time. And it was Blaise Pascal that said, all human suffering stems from the fact that we can't sit quietly in a room by ourselves. So when you sit quietly with yourself, you notice that agitation, right? Hopefully you noticed. If you haven't, come be my teacher. I'd rather that method. <laughs> but I notice a lot of physical discomfort and mental agitation and irritability. And the only thing we're doing is softening and letting that be. Hard to do, but it can be developed. They call this equanimity. Even in some of Daniel Siegel's research and teachings on the window of tolerance, we know that, yeah, when you sit with unpleasant feelings and emotions, your capacity to sit with those things becomes larger. Meditation helps us to develop an increased tolerance for unpleasant feelings and an increased tolerance for the impermanent pleasant feelings. Because conversely, our relationship to pleasure is self-medicate, right? Simple little moments of how can I feel better, but meaning how can I feel different? Feeling better isn't a problem. The Buddha says feel better. You know, the world's got lots of things to feel better, but try to feel better in a skillful way, in a way that supports your happiness and welfare. When we try to feel better and we create a habit, the habit creates dependence. And when there's dependence, there's not independence. And independence is what freedom is. So we, we really walk around dependent on our habits to get us through the day. And then life becomes about getting through something. And you get through a week and you get through a year and you get through the pandemic and then you get through the next pandemic and then you get through the next pandemic and it's like, fuck. When is it going to end? And it's like, well, yeah, if your happiness is dependent on something being different, your happiness is always going to be unreliable. So how can we find a happiness within ourselves that looks more like something like peace? Like, I don't have to like unpleasantness, but can I be with it in a compassionate way? And there, in that way, be at peace with it. As we begin to cultivate more awareness around these feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, we start to see the role of feeling that conditions our reactive mind states. Right? How feeling kind of conditions these mind states. In Buddhism, the three traditional ones are greed, hatred, and delusion. Sounds like a very religious interpretation of the three <laughs> mind states. 
But if we break it down, actually the word for these three mind states, these reactive mind states, um, in Buddhism is kalesa. And kalesa means something like defilement, which again sounds very religious, like you're just walking around with a defiled, dirty mind. <laughs> uh, defilement, when I looked it up, it means something that pollutes, corrupts, covers, or spoils the beauty of something or someone. So interesting, and this is the piece that you don't get in secular mindfulness, I'm going to throw right in there because I think it's so important, is fundamental to Buddhism is actually that at your core, we all have this Buddha nature. That the reason we can't see it is because of the reactivity that covers it. And the word the Buddha uses for these defilements is he calls them nawaranas, which means these coverings. And he describes your essence. I didn't say self for those that want to go down that road, but your essence is like a uh, bowl of water. And these reactive mind states are like algae and, and dyes and mud and things that, and even wind that whips the water and these things that cover the clarity of who we really are. Even in the early Buddhist texts, this metaphor was used. This has become more popular Buddha nature as a concept in Tibetan Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. But the Buddha himself talks about this in this metaphor of the bowl of water. Here's what Ajahn Chah has to say about our essential nature. He says, within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows its moods. It becomes agitated because the moods come to deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions of pleasure and pain come and trick it into unhappiness suffering, gladness, and sorrow, but the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a temporary mood that comes to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows this thing. It forgets itself, then we think that it is we who are upset, or we who are happy, or we who are at ease, or we who are whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all of this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So I'm just curious. This isn't something you have to believe, but what's, I think it's uh, a pause is in order just to kind of take that in. What if your emotions and your mind states said nothing about who you are? And what if these are just temporary things that are constructed in the mind? And that meditation can help us to see their temporariness and not identify with them. So then we're happy we can be happy, but without attaching a story to the happiness. Or when we're in pain, we can be in pain, 
but without creating a story around the pain. So we can just be happy and present and unhappy or full of sadness and present with compassion. So why does the mind have these reactions? Why does it get greedy? Why does the mind have craving and anticipation? Why do we cling to pleasant things and need them to stick around or get caught up in addictions and self-medicating behaviors? I think these are, A, our evolutionary biology. You know, we haven't always lived long lives and what was advantageous at certain times in our lives was to get pleasure and avoid pain. Because a lot of times, not all the time, these days, not much of the time, pleasure meant safety and pain meant threat. The Buddha talks about, in the mythological story of his awakening, having this demon visit him named Mara, tattooed on my knee right here. (laughs) Interestingly, in the Buddhist mythology, Mara, this demon, is not a bad thing. It's an unskillful thing. It's a state of reactivity that visits us. Uh, But it is just kind of a part of the cosmos, a part of the samsaric world. And the Buddha gets really intimate with Mara through his awakening process, comes to see it, meaning he starts to see his own reactive states. He starts to get really intimate with the states of greediness in his mind and the states of hatred in his mind and the states of delusion in his mind. And it's through that mindfulness, that relationship with Mara, that the Buddha starts to not identify with Mara as himself. And he sees Mara as just these coverings, these survival strategies. The word that comes to mind is fortification, right? A lot of times our reactive mind states are just these defensive walls that we've learned to build, whether through our evolutionary biology or our personal history. Our need to try to, you know, selfishly get the things that we want. I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life that if I didn't go after the things that I wanted, I wasn't going to get anything. So that kind of scarcity mentality was a, a fortification for me. Not very conducive to happiness, but at a time in my life, conducive to my survival. <laughs> you know, my distrust and skepticism of other people is another Mara that visits me. Again, a fortification is this defensive wall that I built. Protective in some ways, because if I'm skeptical and distrustful, then I can't get hurt, but I also can't connect. So again, not really helpful for my happiness, but can be protective at times in my life. And so we start to see these reactive parts of our mind, greed, hatred, and delusion, as evolutionary parts of our history, and also parts of our personal history. 
and we start to appreciate them as such. But to have the discernment to know that they don't lead to our happiness, ultimately. And how can we start to try to live with more of an undefended heart? A mind and heart free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Going against those tendencies. That's fucking scary. The thing I love about this practice, a little bit less gentle than therapy, I'm a therapist outside of here too, is the Buddha saying like, go for it. He's saying like, these walls that you've built between yourself and the world are causing you suffering and tremendous amounts of other people's suffering. Break them down. So how do we do this? Well, the first thing the Buddha says is just to try to be aware that these mind states are present. His actual instructions in that 10-page discourse on mindfulness of mind are about a paragraph long. And he says, in practicing mindfulness of these mind states, one knows a lustful, greedy, craving-filled mind is lustful, greedy, or craving-filled. And a mind without lust, greed, or craving is without. One knows an aversive, resentful, or hatred-filled mind to be a mind of aversion, resentment, or hatred. And a mind without to be without. One knows a deluded mind, a confused, bewildered mind, to be a mind with confusion, delusion, bewilderment. And one knows that a mind without to be without. So he's saying here that our practice and mindfulness is to just notice when these mind states are present and absent. I'll say, speak to the absent part first, because it's a weird contemplation. Right? How often do you say, I'm really not angry right now? You know? Wow, I'm really not greedy. I'm very content with things in my life as they are right now. Greedy is absent in my mind. We usually notice the opposite, right? Like, oh, I'm really grateful. Right? But sometimes we're not grateful, we're just not greedy. You know, sometimes there's just the absence of that mind state. And this really talks about, think about mindfulness as always being in the present time, like that scientist. And none of us are going to do it 100% of the time. I mean, you could move to Burma and they'll get you close. They'll get you about 14 hours a day, right? That's pretty close. But none of us are going to be 100%. But in our practice, in our formal practice, we can start to check in and notice the presence and absence of these mind states. And here's the trick. This is the first thing that I say here, the practice. Notice which mind states are present and absent for the purpose of breaking identification with them. What does that mean? Seeing them for just what they are. The way Joseph Goldstein says to practice this is switch your language from I am angry to there is anger in the mind. From I am pissed to there is anger in the mind. To that person did this to me, to there is anger in the mind. Because when we have that level of awareness, what happens is a deepening of understanding of the mind state. And through understanding comes better communication in our relationships. Right? It 
clearer communication, less reactivity in our relationships. But first, we have to pause and acknowledge it. So just noticing the presence and absence of states can help you unhook from the mind state. And also to not take it so personally. This is what's fun about having Dharma homies that you've hung around for 10 years, is we talk about how deluded our minds are. Like, my mind is just on one today. You know, like, not to be trusted sometimes. (laughs) And we can laugh about it and be like, yeah, you know, that's how it is. The mind is not always telling the truth. But it's tricky, Joseph Goldstein says, although discerning what's a skillful mind state from what's an unskillful mind state is basic to the Buddhist teaching, our Western culture, in our Western culture, it's a very delicate process. For many people, it's an easy step from recognizing a particular mind state like greed or hatred as being unskillful to jumping to the feeling that somehow you're a bad person for having it or that it's wrong for it to happen in the first place. This pattern of reaction simply leads to more self-judgment and more aversion, which then leads to more suffering. It's not a helpful cycle. So the Buddha is encouraging discernment. This is the second piece here. Acting on greed, acting on hatred, acting on delusion is not for the benefit of my welfare and happiness and the benefit and welfare of the happiness of the world. It's just not. But oftentimes when I notice those mind states arise, I feel like, A, they shouldn't be happening or that I'm a bad person for having them because there's an over-identification with the mind state. I can't even change my behavior because of how much self-judgment I have for not being a perfect fucking person. Meditation is not about perfection. It's about complete acceptance that you're going to have hateful, greedy, deluded mind states on the regular so we can just notice them and have discernment then we can actually start to say oh okay mine you really hate that person (laughs) tell me more how do you feel right now well they did this and did that and took this oh yeah you feel violated you know can I be with that part of my experience Can I have compassion for the part of me that feels violated and hurt? Slow down with it, you know? So the difference between discernment and self-judgment is important. And as we start to practice mindfulness, as we continue to practice mindfulness, it weakens that conditioned response of reactivity. Right? The Buddha says, whatever you think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of the mind. If you frequently ruminate on resentments, guess what the state of your mind is? Resentful a lot of the time. If you can start to practice mindfulness, observe it, slow down with it, disengage from the story around it, have some discernment around it, try to bring compassion to it, it weakens the bond of the resentment. The word for awakening in Buddhism is nirvana, like the band. (laughs) 
The Buddha named it after the band. Uh, the Pali Sanskrit word is Nibbana, which is a cooking term. I talked about this a few weeks ago. That means to remove a boiling pot from a fire. So what awakening literally means when translated is the cooling down of reactivity. And what the Buddha says about awakening is that it is gradual. He says like the shelf of an ocean gradually slopes. He says your awakening process, the cooling of these reactive mind states is gradual. When the Dalai Lama was asked, how long should you wait to check in with someone about your practice? to know whether it's working for you or not. He says you should probably check in, not to wait to check in with someone, but with yourself. Like, is it working? He says, give yourself like every 10 years. <laughs> and we notice this, right? Because we go through hard times and we go through good times. And those are just the conditions of living in samsara, in the world. Pleasure, pain, gain, loss, praise, blame, status, disgrace, never going away, up and down. Beauty and tragedy. But how are we relating to the up and down? That's the subtlety of awakening. Mindfulness helps us to weaken these conditioned patterns of reactivity over time. Um, last thing I'll share is Pema Chodron says, it is only when we begin to relax with ourselves that meditation becomes a transformative process. Only when we relate to ourselves without moralizing and without harshness, without deception, can we let go of harmful patterns. Notice that she included all of those, moralizing, harshness, and deception. Without kind awareness, letting go of old habits can become abusive. So how, how do we notice our anger, our frustration, our fear, all of these parts of our experience in a kind and compassionate way? I see you mind, I feel you, I care for you, I love you, keep going, I forgive you mind, you know, relating to the mind rather than reacting from it. <laughs> 